high and lock into reasonable and necessary Australia's permanent podcast series on the NDIS. Brought to you by the Summer Foundation. I'm your host, Dr. George Talaporis, and on today's episode, we're talking about unregistered providers. But before we go any further, please do me a favor and hit the like button, subscribe to the channel, and select the notification bell so you can be notified of future episodes. Did you know that NDIS participants spend overall about 50% of our funding on unregistered providers? And this number is growing. Yep, unregistered providers are a very important part of the NDIS market. So why are more and more of us turning to unregistered providers for our support? And what can we do to stay safe? Let's find out. Hi, Helen, Nick, and Jared. Welcome to Reasonable Necessary. I'd love it if you could uh, introduce yourselves. Helen, can I start with you? Hi, George. Um, so I'm Helen Dickinson. I'm a professor of public service research at UNSW in Canberra. Um, and much of my research focuses on the policy and, and practice around the disability space. Hi, George. I'm Nick Avery. I'm an NDIS participant and parent of two young adults who are also NDIS participants and self-manage all three plans. Um, I'm also CEO of SWAN, which is a small disabled persons organisation in regional WA. Welcome. And Jared. Hi, George. I am a senior peer worker at an uh, organisation called Cedar. And we are an organisation of peers and people with disabilities. We do peer support. Um, and I'm also a disability activist. And I would just like to mention that I'm coming to you from the stolen lands of the Dark and John people. I'd like to pay my respects to them. Welcome, Jared. Great to have you all on the show. Helen, can I start with you? How did you become interested in unregistered providers? So, I mean, I'm really interested in quality and safety of, of, of services, particularly in the disability space. Um, and obviously we've seen through the Royal Commission some you know, awful and very common kind of incidences of abuse and, and neglect. Um, and, and around the middle of last year, um, there were some calls to say, well, maybe some of this problem is because we use unregistered providers and that registration would sort some of, of this out. And and I, I, I didn't really um, think that that was necessarily the case. Um, and then there was a report that came out in the middle of last year from Per Capita, which was about uh, digital platforms and their use in the NDIS, but it conflated a lot of issues in there um, and made some, what I thought were some fairly inaccurate um, statements about registration and about that being a guarantee of, of quality and safety. And, and so this research really came out of, of anger, to be honest, George. I was quite pissed off by some of the debate that was happening around that because 
um, it wasn't um, my experience, it's not the experience of many NDIS participants who I spoke to. And, and then also, you know, the conversation was between policymakers and public servants and, and academics and people with disability weren't having a voice within that discussion. And so with my colleagues, Sophie Yates and Raylene West, we decided to do a project where we spoke to people with disability and said, well, you know, you tell us, why do you use unregistered providers? And, and what do you think if there are any considerations around that in terms of quality and safety? Yeah, I'm so glad that you took that up. Um, I was also quite angry, and what made me angry was, like you said, it was really the, the voice of everyone but people with disabilities, everyone but NDIS participants, and clearly, you know, they and us, we are the ones who are most important when it comes to what quality looks like. So can you tell us about the research itself and uh, the methodology and who you interviewed? Yeah, so the first thing I'll say, George, is this is the quickest project I've ever recruited interviewees for. So um, we put out a call on social media and through some um, advocacy groups who we work with. Um, we wanted to speak to 30 um, people who were either NDIS participants and then a smaller number of plan nominees and sometimes both. Um, and we wanted to get a good range across the country in different sorts of um, regions um, and different backgrounds. Um, and we filled those interview slots um, in less than 24 hours and had a big waiting list of people <laughs> who wanted to speak to us. So that told us that there were some people out there who were also being frustrated um, in this conversation. Um, and so we did interviews over, um, over Zoom and, and Teams um, with people everywhere around Australia, apart from the Northern Territory, we didn't have anybody um, from there, where we kind of asked people, um, why do you use unregistered providers? Um, uh, George, your feedback was very helpful for us in our early development of the interviews, because you told us we should be asking people why they don't use registered providers as well, so we did that. Um, and then what, what people do to make sure that they get quality, safe, uh, quality and safe services. So what sort of steps do people take to make sure that they're safe? I, I think that's really interesting that you said that you had all those participants within 24 hours. Having done research myself, I know how hard it can be to get participants. So, yeah, and, and as, as someone who took part in your research, I was really eager to get involved. So it just shows that, you know, if you're doing research that matters to people, you're, you're going to get some, some good responses. So let's, uh, let's hear a bit, about, a bit about your findings. So can you maybe give us a bit of uh, an idea of what were the, the key themes or the key messages that people in your study what it was yeah, so I, I guess first of all, it's kind of important that this 
you know, the debate between registered or unregistered is not very nuanced in many different ways, but firstly because people buy different types of services and supports from unregistered providers. So in our work we talked about about four different types of um, um, services or supports. So there's things like consumables, so, you know, basic pieces of kind of equipments and, and medical supplies and assistive technologies. Um, and people said, well, you know, we get these from unregistered providers. We get exactly the same product. There's no difference in the quality, but often the difference is in terms of the cost. Um, we can get them cheaper if we go to unregistered providers. So people talked about the um you know, when you go and you buy something for a wedding and it's got a wedding tag on, it's, you know, 20% more expensive than a general product is. It's often the same for in, in the disability space as well. So people said, I go with unregistered providers because it costs me less, but, you know, there's no difference in quality. I, I saw that the disability tax. Yeah. Uh, if you buy something suddenly it's a lot more expensive. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's not the only tax we see around. I wonder when Aldi started selling wheelchairs, you know, it was the same product, but suddenly it was a lot cheaper. Yeah, that's right. And I remember one of the earliest projects I did around the NDIS, somebody told me that they'd wanted to get um, a a kettle tipper to stop them from, you know, pouring hot water on themselves. And they found one at Aldi for $30, whereas it was, you know, $200 through the provider and they weren't allowed to just go and buy it um, through their NDIS funds. So, um, yeah, so that's the first kind of category. Um, Then there's things like household services, so things like cleaning and gardening services. Um, And people said, again, I mean, that's not a disability specific um, uh, service, you know, you know, I might be buying them because, you know, my disability means that um, I'm restricted in in some of those things, but actually it's not specific to my disability. um, And and so there's not kind of any different risk there. And also what I can do is um, use local and, and small businesses. So, you know, and then I feel more connected to the community and I'm happy, you know, supporting local businesses. Um, And then we've got things like allied health and other kind of therapies. So, you know, physiotherapy uh, and things like that. And and they might not be registered with the NDIS, but they're all registered with their um, uh, professional bodies and accredited to that. So actually there we find that registration isn't a a kind of um, anything to do with with quality or doesn't give an additional kind of quality or safety marker. Uh, I think most of the debate today has probably been around the final category which is around support workers so where people either um, employ support workers directly or or through by uh, sole contractors or via um, online um, platforms and I guess it's controversial because people are kind of within uh, uh, personal um, domestic context and delivering personal care but again people said to us well actually if I go with an unregistered support worker I've got more flexibility I can choose the sorts of workers that I want um, that's more consistent I can set the wage rates and, and move away from some of the rules that you get um, uh, around agencies and, and have more empowerment and, and control 
And, and, and so overall, people told us they were really positive about their experiences of using unregistered providers and said to us, really, it's about empowerment and it's about exercising choice and control, which, you know, is is supposed to be fundamental um, to the NDIS. And so many people said to us, you know, I get better quality services through unregistered providers and they're more cost effective, which is good for me in terms of my plan. It makes it go further, but it's also better for, for the um, for the taxpayers and then some people and maybe we'll get to this later in a bit more detail told us i have to use unregistered providers because i don't have any choice um what the ndia calls thin markets which is where we have markets that that don't have either enough or the right types of providers to deliver services are the reality in many places um in the country and and this isn't just for people who live in um rural um or remote areas there's also many people who live in inner city areas who can't find the types of providers or the types of services that they want. So they have no choice but to go to unregistered um, providers. And then I guess the, the final thing on this is many people said to us they actively avoid purchasing services from registered providers. Um, so a lot of people had had bad experiences or felt that they were at more risk because they had to go through a gatekeeper um, within um, within the providers. And that meant they didn't necessarily have a relationship with the um, uh, with the worker, particularly support workers on a on a person to person um, basis. People told us that uh, registration isn't any guarantee of quality. Um, whenever people receive services, there's always going to be some level um, of risk involved. And actually, there's a certain amount of dignity of risk in allowing you know people who receive those services to work out what sort of risks or what sort of levels of, of quality um, they want to receive. And, and I think this focus on just thinking about providers and whether they're registered or not, it takes away the agency of individuals in that relationship to be the ones who really, I think, are co-regulating those services. It's not just for regulators to have a, a view on that. People who are receiving those services need to have a say in that as well. Yeah, and indeed, isn't that the whole point of what the NDIS was meant to be about, that we have you know, dignity of risk, that we can have choice and control and make decisions about what what suits us. I, I I feel quite strongly about that. Let me turn to you, Jared. Uh, yeah. you, you use unregistered providers. Yeah, uh, what's your experience? So I moved to the Central Coast in a very quick situation. It was to do with my partner's family member who was passing away, and I had to move up here very quickly. Um, my partner was had a registered provider, but they were uh, one of the big things for them is they were able to um, support me when I needed support. So. Um, they couldn't find anyone to come out after 8 o'clock at night time and um, they couldn't find anyone before 9am. So that made it very hard for the first, um, for the first 
three months while I tried to find other alternatives because although I like spending a lot of time in bed, there's also a problem when yeah, you need to go to the bathroom or you need to eat or maybe you just don't want to go to bed at 7 o'clock. Um, I'm sorry, I really need support when when you need it, like a band and the answers about what what the difference and to the civilians want, not what you know, providers want or when they wanna provide support. Yeah. And it's also not value for money. Like putting on a support worker for two hours from six to seven PM is not value for money for me. If I go to bed, if I go to bed at 7 p.m., I miss out on community participation, work opportunities, all kinds of different reasons. So, um, that's why, like Helen said, the market is very thin, and in the suburbs, for where I, where I come from, anyway. I only found out the other day that all my providers are unregistered. I thought one of them was, but they did So every single one of my providers um, um, are unregistered. So you started, you started with a registered provider. They weren't providing what you needed them to provide, and yeah. therefore you tend to unregister providers and, and now you're getting your needs met. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. My, the majority of them within my control. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the good things. If you like, if you like control and you're a bit of control freak, self-management is for you. Indeed, as a, as a fellow consultants. Uh, Nick, um, can I turn to you? Why do you use unregistered providers? I'm regional. There, there just aren't enough registered providers here. Um, the, the area that I live in, there are several towns that have no registered providers at all. Um, but I'm also a disability advocate, so I know all the registered providers. So for me personally, I don't use any registered providers. I only use non-registered ones. Um, for our two young adult kids, they've got one is using one registered provider, the other is using two. But the majority are non-registered. We're finding they're cheaper. They're a lot more flexible. Um, but we also directly employ two support workers. Um, one has been with us for eight years and the other one's been with us for three years. Um, when I say direct employee, that means that we manage their superannuation, their tax and their insurances. We can arrange training for them. Um, and that training's tailored to the needs of the person they're supporting um, a lot more than it would be with a registered provider. So we claim all of those costs. Uh, we claim the bookkeeping fees as well. Um, and the support workers are also paid $42 an hour plus their superannuation. Um, we've made them part-time employees so they get leave entitlements as well. And it's saving our son's plan $30,000 a year. Um, and he's getting much better quality support. Um, that's 
much more tailored to his needs. I'm glad that you raised that um, direct, direct employment, which is essentially um, what you're doing. And, and clearly, you know, we, we, if people are directly employing their support workers, that's a, that's a really uh, good arrangement because ultimately you're responsible and, and you're going to uh, make sure that your that, that needs are met and also that the, the workers' needs are met. And you cut out the middle person. Um, so you save the agency quite a bit of money in the process. Quite a lot, yeah. And it's also meant that um, one of our, our support workers prior to being employed with us on a part-time basis, he wasn't able to get a loan um, for a mortgage. He wasn't able to get a rental. And we live in an area where there's 100 to 200 people applying for each rental. Um, but because he had that more, he was a permanent part-time employee rather than a casual employee as a support worker, he was able to secure a rental for his wife and his baby. So it, it's made a big difference that in that we're able to better look after our support workers, they're staying with us longer term, um, and it just works so much better for us. Um, and they're clearly very happy um, with us because we've retained one for eight years and um, one has no intention of, of moving on. So um, it, it's win-win, really. Absolutely. Have any of you had any bad experiences with unregistered providers? I've I've also had far worse uh, far worse um situations with with service provider with registered providers. Much much more dangerous and much more um traumatizing with a registered provider than with uh uh unregistered provider and I think the reason why that is, George, is because communication is so important when you are self-managing. And so when you are employing a support worker or a worker or engaging with an unregistered provider, because you're the one that has the control, um, you would not it becomes organic if you like um that your values and your needs are expressed in the beginning and so when when something um when something bad happens um it usually can be um, handled quite quickly and efficiently. In my in my in my circumstance, I know that might be a, a privileged position because I have other workers to fall back on, and that's something you need to weigh up when you become self-managed and you're responsible for filling the ships um, when they need to be filled. So I have had a few instances where um, 
You, you can also check whether they've got uh, a NDIS worker screening check. I don't know what it's like in other states, but in WA, that costs more than the working with children check and the national police clearance together. Um, it does concern me that the, the government's trying to make money out of worker screening. Like, it really, it should be free. I mean, we're talking about safety and we're also talking about workers who, you know, we need more workers in the industry. Don't make it hard for them yeah. to get the necessary tax. So if you're listening, Bill Thornton, um, sort that one out, please. I know that you're listening, so... <laughs> just on the, the NDI's worker screening check, it's also you just go on a database. Um, so there's no card, there's nothing to show that you've been approved. So... Um, you know, the, the self-manager has to sign up for the, to the, access the database as well to, to check whether that person's got the screening check. So, so maybe a card, if you're going to pay almost $150, maybe a card to go with it to prove that you've been screened. Now, some of the um, registered providers, uh, and, and um, not all of them, just a, a small group, they, they say it's unfair and they say that we should all have to use them because, you know, they're, they're essentially um, meeting all these uh, extra requirements and, and they think that we should all use them. Uh, what is your thoughts? What, what would happen and what would be the consequences for you if the government agreed with them and decided that we would only be allowed to use registered providers and that they banned us from using unregistered ones? Can I start with you, Nick? Well, it would be a disaster for everybody in regional and remote Australia. Um, like I said before, there, there are towns with, with not a single registered provider. So essentially you do without support. Um, even where there is a registered provider or a couple of registered providers, the wait lists here are huge. We're, we're talking about six months to 12 months to two years, sorry, wait list to access services in our region. So if everyone has to then join the same small number of registered providers, that queue just blows out astronomically. So it would be a major problem and we're going to have more people experiencing what Jared did of spending the night in your wheelchair. You know, it, it would be horrendous. Um, please don't do it, Mr Shorten. So this idea that I saw a registered service provider is somehow clean and safe and polite and will attend to all of your needs and that unregistered providers are your dodgy neighbour that might abuse you in the middle of the night is absolutely just a load of shit. It's, it's not it's not accurate and um I'm hoping in the future when, if the government keeps talking about putting people back into the NDIS, and I think they mean disabled people, that um, these experiences and knowledge, um, knowledge pools 
um, will shed some light that um, nature supervisors are not clean and shiny, and unregistered providers are not dodgy and corrupt. Absolutely, it's, it's uh, important to recognize that uh, people need choice and, um, and that, that I, I, I think that we need, we need both, registered and unregistered. Helen, um, your, your report um, was fantastic. I recommend everyone reads it. Uh, it focused a lot in the recommendations around capacity building. And capacity building of both people disabilities and of unregistered providers. Why is this really important? Well, in, in thinking about what we do about this, this um, situation where we know that people aren't always safe in, in services and not agreeing that registration was the answer, we start to think about, well, what else could happen to, to try and address some of those issues? And it's always struck me as really odd that, you know, NDIS participants, um, you come into the scheme because you've got a permanent and significant disability and that it's fairly likely that you're going to need support over a number of years. And yet when we look at thinking about how we think about safety and things like that, we just tend to think about the providers and not about the huge resource that people with disability at the centre of that are. And so our suggestion is that if we could think about capacity building with people with disability a bit more to say, you know, what do you expect in terms of services? What, you know, what does a, a a service that's unsafe or that doesn't feel right for you, what, you know, what might that look like? And what do you do about it if you find yourself in, in that situation? And regardless of whether you use registered or unregistered providers, and, and like Nick's family, you know, often people use a combination of, of both of them, or as Jared says, you know, you don't even know if you've got registered providers or not because you've never thought, thought about that issue you know, that's going to produce kind of better outcomes for people because you've got people better equipped to navigate the, the system, to know what, you know, know what they should expect and how to speak out. I think it's really important that we can't forget there's a bunch of people in the NDIS now who were in other service systems before, for sometimes decades, who did not receive always quality services. I mean, that was, you know, we saw all of the stuff before the NDIS about why we needed the NDIS because services weren't meeting people's needs needs and expectations and there's a big culture shift for both providers and for people um, using those services in the system and and so I think to do a bit more work around capacity building with people to say this is what you should be getting in terms of a service if you don't feel right about these things these are some of the avenues that you go down and some of the things that you should um, that you should do some of the recommendations around unregistered providers were around just you know some of the things about how you you know um, how, how you approach services, the sorts of things that you need in place around superannuation and, and you know, insurances and, and things like that. But to me, that's kind of a more minor point of it. And I think really focusing on NDIS participants is where we need to look at this. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I, I think that we, we need to recognise that 
the best kind of support and capacity building is is peer support, and that that yeah, people can really benefit from uh, having access to to peer mentoring, and and clearly, you know, that's an, an area that's that's under underfunded um, in our country. So, Bill, if you're listening, so Helen, you want to say something? I was just going to say, I mean, obviously we've seen some of those sorts of projects around the ILC fund, you know, with the with the NDIS, but I guess one of the challenges in, in my experience of many of them is they're quite short-lived. Um, by the time they're up and running, they're thinking about whether they're having to, to wrap up or bid for, for some more money. So it would be really nice if we could think about how we use some of that stream of funding to do some of that, that work to support this space as well. Yeah, ongoing reliable funding is really important too. I'm really glad that we had this discussion and you know, I think one of the taken messages is that we, we need we need to recognise that it's hard to find workers out there in the in the in the sector and there's a lot of uh, really critical needs that are not going to be met if we if we start uh, reducing people's options and choices and so um, I think the message is really that that yeah registered unregistered we need we need those types and we we need uh, to build people's capacity uh, to access the support that suit Set us the best. Any other final thoughts? We also need disabled support workers. We need people with disabilities working as support workers. Nick? I would like to emphasise what Helen said about um, more investment in ILC and supporting disabled persons organisations and peer support organisations to support people in this area. But I also think that um, rather than requiring providers become NDIS registered, NDIA and the LIC partners and community and the ECA coordinators, they have a role to play as well. They should be contacting participants and nominees to check in to make sure, uh, regularly, to make sure that, you know, that we're safe. We feel safe in our homes that that we're safe when we're using our support services, that we can access the supports that we need, um, that we understand our rights, um, and that our providers are appropriately supporting us and charging us correctly as well, because there is a lot of overcharging going on. But also that we know how to complain about providers and have access to support to do that if we need to. You know, there's lots of people in this area that have not heard from anyone at um, NDIS for two to three years, um, and, and that's really not not okay. Now, I honestly feel that that would be a much better way of ensuring people are safe and that they're getting the quality services that they need is to keep checking in and making sure and hear from them. Yeah, and I think that you just reminded us that that Andrew Smith. Uh and the, the tragic situation there, that was a registered provider. Um, sorry to leave it on such a, a sad note, but I think that, that we do need to recognise that there's been a lot of abuse and, and violence that's gone on. And 
Yeah, the way they solve that is to, is, is really a lot more complicated than saying that we all need to use registered providers. And in fact, um, that'll only make it worse. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, Jared for your time, and uh, I, I really uh, enjoyed our discussion. Thanks, George. Thanks, George. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Visual and Necessary. To be notified of future episodes, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. Thank you to our podcast partner for this episode, the University of New South Wales. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay well and reasonable.